the man went to the pet store to buy himself a little man to keep him company. The pet store was full of dogs with splotches and shy cats coy, and the friendly people got dogs and the independent people got cats, and this man looked around until in the back he found a cage inside of which was a miniature sofa and tiny TV and one small, attractive, brown-haired man wearing a tweed suit. He looked at the price tag. The little man was expensive, but the big man had a reliable job and thought this a worthy purchase. He brought the cage up to the front, paid with his credit card, and got some free airline points. In the car, the little man's cage bounced lightly on the passenger seat held by the seatbelt. Amy Bender is the author of the short story collection The Girl in the Flammable Skirt and the novel An Invisible Sign of My Own. Her new book is Willful Creatures. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. Amy, tell me. Do you dream in color? I think so. I dream outlandish dreams, but I forget most of them. And I think they're in color. It's, I think I have memories of colorful dreams, yes. The reason I ask this is because your stories seem like bubbles that come up from your unconscious mm-hmm. whole, like little dream bits captured. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to tell me a little bit about, do you wake up and write down, try to write down your dreams? I have a little book by my bed, and sometimes I'll write them in there. But but I write in the morning, fairly close to after I've just woken up. So I think there is some kind of residue of thinking or that sort of groggy dream state of mind that just gets carried into the writing process that way. I haven't really gone into the day and sort of been in the outside world and had that more conscious sort of living, eating, hanging out, walking around. So in that quiet space, I think a lot of the dream images stick around. Tell me a little bit about the role of the subconscious and the unconscious in your work. It's a, it's a great question because I think about it a lot. And I feel like um, each of us has this, this whole, you know, roiling unconscious that's there. And it's such a creative resource. And I really feel like a lot of my job as the writer is to get out of the way as much as I can and let what's going to tumble out, tumble out on the page. And one of the things I like about writing is that it is private so that I can just write whatever. And if I'm horrified, I, no one has to ever see it. And then... The second job in rewriting is to go back and see what's working or what has some unconscious weight to it, because I think there's a lot to skim off the surface. You have to get through a lot in order to um, get to the meat of the of the story or the emotion or the character. And so I need to kind of get through that, those layers. And then I think the unconscious will consistently reward patience and things happen. Now, you mentioned that sometimes you're horrified by what you write. Tell me a little bit about what doesn't get onto the page or between the covers of your books. I mean, I think what's startling is often the things that maybe feel scary to write about turn into what is the better work. And so often what's in the pages that you see that get published is the stuff that in the moment I need to know that it's okay if no one else sees it. There's a story in there that I just read the opening from about a man who gets this little man and then starts to treat him badly. And it it bothered me when I was writing that story. I would write it in these little bits, and it just bothered me. And I felt like maybe no one will ever read this because it's really disturbing me. But then it started to shape into a story, and I showed it to some friends, and they were really enthusiastic about it. And at that point, I think there was enough separation from the story that I felt that I could let it go into the world. Tell me a little bit about how you develop your short stories. 
do you start with an image? Do you have a plot? Do you just I, you know, apparently you stream in the morning there. Tell yeah. us a little bit how that works. Well, I mean, I'll start often with an image or even a word, some idea. But the, the main way that I work is I write for two hours in the morning. And then the idea of it is that I can do, I can write whatever I want and I just have to sit there. So I start a lot of things in an effort to entertain myself and get through that time. And most of those things um, bottom out and never become anything. And then something will kind of catch. And then I'll be curious. Um, And the curiosity is sort of my best clue to keep going. And I'll see what happens in that story and I'll follow it through. And sometimes it'll take a year to complete a story and sometimes it'll take a week. But that, that process... I'll have on my computer now so many half-written files, and part of the thing I do in the morning is just reread those, look at those, see if there's something that interests me this year that didn't four years ago when I started the story about the imp, you know, something about that. So so there's a kind of um, ongoing process with myself in that way. I'd like you to tell me a little bit about your background I read fairy tales voraciously as a kid. I read them over and over, and I read these Andrew Lang collections that were called the Lilac Fairy Book or the Blue Fairy Book or the Ochre Fairy Book, and he would collect them from around the world so they were not just your um, standard Grimm's tales but also um, ones from Japan or um, fairy tales from Africa. And um, and I just ate them. I feel like I just took them in. There's something about that storytelling method that I loved, how fast it was and how shocking it sometimes was. And I think the real shift for me is I, I really didn't think that a literary fiction and fairy tales could both exist on a page together. I really felt like that was a, a childish love of mine that I would have to abandon if I took my writing seriously as an adult. And it was an amazing and fulfilling shift when actually the stuff that I was writing that was better was more fairy tale like and, and readers of mine would say, oh, I really like the way that you're telling a story in this kind of fable-like form. And that felt like a, an incredible permission pass. Your work does use a lot of elements of the fantastic mm-hmm. It's, you know, sometimes it feels like it's cheating because if you change a rule of the world and then you play out the consequences, a lot of the writing job is kind of done. And it, or, or it feels like it's just a follow through of logic. And so for me, there's some way that I feel like it's so exciting to think that I'm allowed to write in that way. Because if I change one rule of the world, a person can go to a store and buy someone who's, you know, two inches tall and take them home. Then my job is to just think, well, what would happen next? What would ha- what's the logical progression of that? There's this great book, Blindness, by Jose Saramago, and he starts it with this premise that people are blind, and uh, one man just becomes blind driving. He just goes blind, and then there's something happening in the city with blindness. And I actually don't want to tell too much because it, it's such an interesting progression. But all he does in that one magical thing of one person just going blind instantly is he does a whole novel where he plays out that logic. And humanity behaves in predictable ways often, so we are at times glorious and also horrifying. And so to see that um, inside the skew of a different world feels really exciting to me because you just, when I teach sometimes, I'll talk about the words magic and logic as being very connected and very similar-looking words too, but that you think with magic, oh, I can do anything, all the rules are off, and it's not true at all. It has to... It has to look like our world, just a little bit different. You, Since you brought up the word 
magic. Mm. Let's talk about the tension between the literature of the fantastic and magic realism and genre fiction, horror, science fiction, fantasy. You mm. work in elements of both. There's a story of yours, the c- concluding story in Willful Creatures, Him, mm. is reads like a surreal retelling of a very famous science fiction novel by John Wyndham called The Midwich Cuckoos, Ooh, which know. was, uh, it was made as uh, Children of the Damned, very famous. Okay, okay, that's famous great. Famous movie. <laughs> but I'll have to write that down. That, okay, and the, this kind of idea of sort of strange children and what are they going to do? Right, the, with... yeah, children who are born in a otherwise ordinary mm-hmm. village and mm-hmm. have, have a destiny, mm-hmm. clearly have a destiny beyond uh-huh. normal great to hear actually um as a recommendation i think it's like comic books then too often like superheroes or or mutants someone was talking about x-men in terms of the idea of mutants um special powers and you know it's hard the i think um any of that it's all metaphor so it's they are similar in that you're using metaphor in some way i think one of the compelling things about horror is horror is so psychological and it's so much about the kind of unconscious worlds that we that we might walk into in a nightmare um, and seeing those on the page and um, but that's all about metaphor again about seeing feelings or seeing experiences contorted and sort of made into the grotesque so I feel like they're all on a similar spectrum and it it's hard to define what makes something more genre and what makes something you know fall into a magic realism category you know I it it feels like a very blurry line to me Um, do you think about it when you write Ever? Do you think, well, the, here's, an, here's a story I could sell to Asimov's as opposed to Mystery Review. I haven't as much and because I don't actually know that much of the markets in terms of science fiction, so I haven't tried. But I did an interview with um, this guy, Benjamin Rosenbaum, who does um, wonderful, he writes wonderful pieces himself, but it was for a science fiction website. And, and that was really fun to feel like, oh, I love the idea that that my stuff might be able to cross over in this way. Um, so I hadn't really considered it as a market um, because I think I just knew more about things like the Missouri Review. I just was more aware of that. But as a kid, I read science fiction too, and I really I really liked it. I just really liked taking that journey with whoever's guiding it into a different place and seeing what the repercussions are of that. You talked a little bit about horror. The story in uh, Willful Creatures I found just terrorizing actually was called Debbie Land. Yeah. It was very, very creepy. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the idea behind that story and how you developed it because it made my skin crawl. Yeah, thanks, I guess. <laughs> and it's interesting because it's not, it's, it's not a, um, it's a very realistic story and, and probably one of the most realistic in the book. But it's a story about a kind of gang of, of junior high school girls who, who pick on one girl who really wants to be in the popular group and then beat her up and then the narrator is narrating from a we point of view as if she's still in a group but she's much older at that point so she's still kind of viewing herself as part of this gang even though everyone has separated at that point and I remember there was a a point in junior high where I remember um, watching I mean it actually did have I never saw the beating up happen but I remember one girl a kind of tough popular girl saying she'd worn her rings on that day because they were going to beat up this other girl that I had, you know, seen as really wanting to be part of the popular group. And and watching that from a distance as a kind of neutral, I felt like a very ordinary junior high school 
person. And really, I think my goal in junior high was to try and just not ruffle anyone's feathers so that I could just get through it. And and it was so scary to me that she'd said she'd worn all her rings. It seemed so vicious. But maybe part of the reason that um, stayed with me is the girl that I don't even know if they actually beat her up or not, but that I could see also how much she was trying to be popular and how painful that was too that there was pain on all sides like everyone was just in a in a terrible space with their own um place with who they were at that time so so that story kind of popped out of that and it it was it surprised me too i think it yeah it kind of came out of the blue a little bit i want to ask you a little bit about the obsessional characters mm. that you like to write about mm. Uh, particularly mm-hmm. Mona in An Invisible Sign of My Own. Mm-hmm. Did you study that kind of psychology before you went out to write about her, or did you just make it up as you went along? I guess, I mean, I have my own obsessional ways. They're not as extreme, but I think there's something about fiction for me where I can take something that I can relate to and make it much larger on the page, and it's the same instinct as making something magical, which is that if you blow it up, you can see the corners of it more clearly. Like I guess um, trying to think of it, it's like congruent shapes or something that you can suddenly, um, like a balloon, if I blow up a balloon, you can see the shape of it differently than if it's like a little balloon. I, I can't think of exactly what the image is that, I, that would convey this. But, but so I think um, I remember, you know, having a point where I was knocking on wood a lot and then I made Mona knocking on wood constantly. So it was like... I remember that feeling of of just like going a little overboard with the knocking on wood and then to make a character who's going way overboard um, takes that feeling that I could identify and then um, puts it, you know, writ large. And so, and then I could kind of explore it, I think, in all these ways that if it's too subtle or if it's too integrated, if the person is more balanced, um, it's harder to get at it. so I think that's part of my attraction to a lot of my choices in writing is the more obsessional the character, the more kind of driven they are in the story to act out this obsession. And then I can see where that's going to go. Um, and so, yeah, there's a character in Wolfful Creatures who starts the story. It's, she's at a party and she wants to kiss three different guys, brown hair, red hair, blonde hair. And she's pretty obsessional in that way and really organized. Like she's really got a plan. But it really lets me then let that guide the story and see what happens if her plan works. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? Which point might it fail? Um, uh, And where does the obsession kind of turn into – where does it sour? Where is it empowering? I want to ask you about the mathematical purity of your language. Your stories have a very mathematical feel. And Mm -hmm. I think this – comes from this what you were talking about the logic idea taking mm-hmm. making a decision that you can buy little men yeah. um, and then following that with a mathematical precision mm. and you, you do this a, a lot in it and in your novel as well mm. tell me a little bit about how you develop the actual language on a sentence by sentence and word by word level it's um a lot of it is how it sounds. I will read stuff aloud, and I want to feel like the rhythm feels right. So I think I'm listening for a certain kind of rhythm. There are also words that I'm attracted to visually. Um, so I think I'll pick certain words. or are certain words that are uh, like SAT words I often don't like because I think they're, I think they're often ugly-looking words and sometimes simpler words. Um, like I really like double O words. I really like... Um, 
you know, what someone moon is such a lovely looking word. So to use that anywhere, you know, to look at how something lays out on the page. Um, but I think in terms of the logic, it's nice to hear because um, I feel like there is something about storytelling that is that's part of the pleasure, I think, of reading for me is if I'm reading a story by Roald Dahl or something and he's changing a rule of the world, um, he's got such a firm hand on the storytelling and he's going to guide me through that story. And I don't know where I'm going, but I trust him. And that feels like um, there's something mathematical in that a little bit where you feel like there is um, a system at work here. And even though I don't understand the system, I'm in a system. So I'm in a labyrinth, but it's not going to suddenly turn into the ocean. <laughs> it's a labyrinth. And what's at the end of it? I don't know. So so I think um, on a sentence level, I guess that's where all the work happens in a way because that's where I'll focus in rewriting. That's what I'm looking for. If, if the sentences aren't working, I'll abandon that story. That's my clue that something is going okay. I want to talk to you a little bit about minimalism, too. Sure. Uh, Chuck Polinick actually mentioned your work to me. You're kidding. Yes. That's so nice. In terms He's great. Of, in terms of, of minimalism. Wow. And, and as one who has written, crafted a minimalist novel, mm. something of a contradiction in terms there. Mm. Tell me a little bit about how, you, how minimalism informs your work and shapes it. You know, it's hard to tell because I don't know how to write um, in the maximalist or or even mediumist. What you know, what would be the the norm? Um, if it's minimal, then it's going from regular. I think it's the same instinct I have that leads me to short stories before novels. Though I really like novels, but it feels like a, a stretch for me because I like to finish things and I like them to be spare. So I think it's just, it's sort of like a non-clutter instinct, same way maybe that I like to throw things out. I get a lot of joy when I can, you know, pile up a bunch of old clothes and get them out of the closet. It makes me so happy. In the same way, in a sentence, if I can just cut, cut, cut and feel um, a sort of springing to life of the paragraph or something, then that's thrilling. And, And I think, you know, reading Raymond Carver is great for any kind of minimalist lessons. But for the novel, it's it's nice to hear it described that way because it's I'm not even that aware of it because even the fact that it's a novel felt to me so big, so huge, that if on a sentence level it's more minimal or more spare, that's just because that's the only way I kind of know how to do it. When you're doing that paring down, mm-hmm. your language has a transparency to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you feel that there's a danger that as you try to create this transparency in your prose that you end up with a story that is essentially invisible and maybe unreadable. Mm. Do you ever have to worry about that? And it would become invisible because it would sort of the... You pare away everything (laughs) and there's nothing left. I guess that can happen sometimes, but it's, it's so much more the case that I go on tangents and just puff it up or or it goes too large. Even if the sentences are still minimal, it will kind of go on these, these you know, roads and side paths. Um, so I think sometimes if I'll get a little too picky and I'll reread something over and over and over, then I'll start to cut away and I'll need to slow down and say, actually, where can I open this up? So that's where readers come in, that there is a certain point where I really need to, especially with novel writing, I really need to bring pages to other people and say, What's happening here? And and often they'll say, you're going too fast. You need to slow down. You need to sit with these characters in this scene. Take your time. Even if it's minimally done, take your time. 
because I think I, I have that desire to kind of race ahead and jump 100 years into the future and then now, okay, it's over and then the story's done. Your novels have a lot of evidence of see, things seen and unseen. I think this goes with this kind of transparency we're talking about. I'm thinking in particular of the hospital in uh, An Invisible Sign of My Own, this invisible hospital. It, that book actually, when I was asked to describe it to somebody, I said, well, it's kind of like Kafka's The Castle in Pastels and Pigtails. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I guess that's right in its way. It's a very high compliment. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's very odd. <laughs> but I'd like you to talk a little bit about how you shape that novel and, and the things we see and don't see within it. And I think that's a central thing about it is what we see and don't see or what we know about each other and don't know. Um, I mean, I guess it's, it feels like there are two parts because in terms of the seeing and not seeing, there's this character, Mr. Jones, in there who wears numbers on his neck based on his mood. And I think of him as the character who is the most able to be seen, who is really saying on a given day, this is how I am today, and then on the next day, this is how I am today, and therefore sharing the pain of the really bad days and the joy of the really good days and not hiding that because I think it is it is rare that we're that aware of how everyone's doing on a given day and I think people get really good at a kind of functioning you know stance even on a good day like I think good days get squashed and I think bad get, days get hidden so so I was really interested in that for that book and I think it's an ongoing thing that I'm interested in in terms of it's visible on the surface and what's roiling underneath and and how do we share that? And and in terms of structuring it, it was those themes sort of per, perked up, trickled up. That's the word I want. Perkled? That's not a word. <laughs> trickled up on their own. But I think they became part of the numbers. And, and I was trying to follow. It was really tricky, but I was trying to follow wherever my interest happened in the book and it and it started to group around numbers a lot and I think the numbers were often about naming things really or about what are we trying to quantify things and trying to make them clear and and that feels really related to be, things being seen and unseen as well you know what can we put a number on and what can't we and what do we you know try to make sense of and what things are are always going to be mysterious and this gets to this idea of that you mentioned one of your short stories in uh, Willful Creatures of language as a recording device. Mm. It's a fascinating idea. Mm. And a lot of the stories in this collection seem to revolve around the objectification of language, the distancing of language. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that theme and, and why that interests you and how you work that between these elements of the fantastic that are kind of like right in your face. And yet the stories seem to sometimes exist through a, a three-inch glass safety pane. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's And it's nice to hear that's in there because I'm thinking about it a lot that there's a... Um, when I started writing and things were called Surreal, I went um, on the web and looked up the Surrealist Manifesto of, from the 20s written by Andre Breton, and it's great, and it, talk, it has great lines like, we put signs on the door that says, the poet is working when the poet is asleep. Because they were so into dreams and using dreams as a resource. And that was so new, I think, in a certain way. And so he has a line in there that I that I loved, which was, um, keep reminding yourself that literature is the saddest road that leads to everything. And I put it up in my office where I teach, and I was just looking at it. Why do I like that so much? And what does that mean? 
it's the saddest road that leads to everything. But I think my current interpretation of it is that you give something up in language. You you admit that we can't say everything exactly how it is. That that and metaphors it's true about metaphor too. We are trying to talk about our experiences and we have language. It's one of our very best tools. But it, it's, it's always going to be inadequate. It, it can never exactly explain a, one person fully. But it leads to everything. It's all the things we can do and all the ways we can connect and everything we have and art and communication and talking. Um, it's, it's an incredibly amazing tool. And yet it's still never going to be the same as, as saying, here's my experience. It's, it can't quite be captured in language. So I think... There's maybe part of that in storytelling, which is that I feel like uh, my goal is to try and capture some feeling that feels real and complex, but it's hard to capture. And Flannery O'Connor has this great thing about short stories where she says the theme begins in the first word and ends in the last word. It's the whole story is that theme. You can't pull the theme out. It's just in there. And I love that because it feels like and every story is trying to get at something that, is, that the word theme can't even quite address it. It's so complicated. And yet it's trying to say, well, in that story, I was trying to explain that feeling. I had that one day when I was trying to tell you I was sad. Well, this story can tell you what kind of sad it was because saying the word sad is too broad. So here's what flavor that sadness was. Or here's the kind of joy. Maybe you know how that, that book I read, that kind of joy, that's what it was. So I feel like they're marking points in that way. You use a lot of distancing techniques in your story. There's one mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. the title of which cannot be spoken, mm-hmm. and that makes an effective distancing mm-hmm. uh, marker within the story itself. Tell us a little bit about some of those decisions that you make. and, and Or, for example, not naming characters in oh, that way. Yes. Kind of. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, there is sort of a more, like that more fable-like distance or more mythic where it's a, it's a third person that's a little farther away. And in that, I can kind of maintain maybe a storytelling voice a little bit more. And so I guess it, it, it does create distance. And my interest is in there's some way maybe I can get at a certain emotion that maybe I can't get at if it's closer. So it's it's distance to serve closeness, I guess, is my hope. That it's not – if I named some of those characters, I feel like they would no longer be archetypes. And then the rules would be different about how I have to write about them and then – I'm curious about where they live and what they eat for breakfast, and I kind of want to clear all that away because I don't. It doesn't matter where they live, and it doesn't matter what they eat for breakfast. What matters is this interaction they're having with another person, and how is it going, and and their breakfast is really not a factor, <laughs> you know. In that, if it's yogurt or granola, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but what about you know the way they're handling love or loss, and and so it. It is kind of that same clutter minimalist instinct to be like, I, you know, the name, when you bring in a name, suddenly everyone has tons of associations to that person's name. And that can be good to I have sometimes have that, but, but it can get in the way. Tell me a little bit about your use of details and, and similes. You have a great simile where you say, in dearth, as if someone had put her old life in the laundry and washed it wrong. I, I love that. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. I'm really glad. Tell me um, a little bit about that. I mean, I think it's it it kind of goes back to the earlier thing about the unconscious too, which is that I think similes for me pop out much better if they're just I'm in the story and I'm just thinking, I'm barely thinking, I'm just writing along and 
and I'm with that woman and she's thinking that her old life has been put in the laundry and it's come out wrong and it's a little bit too small and that feeling when you try on the shirt that fits so well when you bought it and then now it's been washed and then it's no longer good. It's just, and it's so sad if you really love that shirt, but it's time has shifted. So I think all those experiences are are in my mind and if I can just let them flow out, they'll kind of come out on their own. And the, the times that the similes I think don't work or when I teach what I try and get my students not to do is to sit down and think, what is it like when you, you know, what is this wall look like? It looks like and very consciously make a match in their mind. So to try and skip that step and get to the more unconscious metaphor, I usually think that one's richer. You teach literature. Yeah, and, and creative, creative writing. And creative writing. Tell me a little bit about the part that that plays in your writing. I really like teaching a lot, and it it mostly feels very social to me. So it feels like the pairing that it has with writing is the difference between working alone and then working with people, and and that feels really important to have it as something else that I do during the day. But I talk about writing a lot, and I'm reading the students' work, and, and one of the things that's good is it. I think every teacher brings to the table their own writing ethic and their beliefs about what writing can be and should be, and so I'm reminded then of what I value, and hopefully it keeps me honest. I think there are days when when I'll, you know, not be doing any of the things that I'm telling them they should really try, and I'm just failing left and right when I sit down. But other times I'll be up there teaching, and I'll think, oh, I need to remember to try that more, and it'll kind of keep me on track. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Are you working on more short stories? So I'm always working on short stories because it's just filling up that two hours and and often short stories trickle in. But, I, but I'm but i working on a novel, too. I had one that I have been working on that I think I'm sort of putting aside, but then started a new one. So so maybe they'll merge or maybe they're separate. But, but I like the challenge of novel writing. So I, I'm hoping this will, you know, evolve in an interesting way. How do you decide when something's a novel and, when's a, and when it's a short story? There are, are parts of an invisible sign of my own that seemed like they might have started out as short stories and there are stories in here that seem like maybe they wanted to be novels. Mm. I'm wondering how you make that decision. It's tough, actually. I think, yeah, and it'd be fun. You'll have to tell me later which ones you think could be novels because maybe I'll look at them again. (laughs) You know, who knows? Maybe they are. Um, but I think it goes back also to the name thing that about the character's name versus the um, archetypal type where a novel, you need to kind of linger with those characters a little bit more. So the pacing is so different. The, the quieting down and and the movement is going to slow down and, and people are, are going to have breakfast. Now I do want to know what they have for breakfast and now it is important where they live. And, and with Mona and An Invisible Sign, it was good to hear about you know how she decorated her her room and and all of that so so that just feels different it doesn't have the texture of a story for me where often I'm going to skip those details so it, it comes back to details in a certain way and and the language changes too I think Rick Moody said something where he was like stories you can I think sometimes take more risks in terms of style like certain stories in here and willful creatures can only be sustained for four pages. And, and after that, who would want to read more? It's just too dense or it's too specific in its own, you know, voice. 
We've been speaking with Amy Bender. Her new collection is Willful Creatures. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you so much, Rick. It was a pleasure to be here.